You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. John chapter 4, we've been working our way through this story of Jesus and the, the Samaritan woman, and we've been working our way through it rather slowly. And we're kind of coming to the end of that story today. So if you would, stand with me as we honor the the reading of Scripture together. I'm going to start in verse 35 of John chapter 4. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving his wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed with them for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said, To the woman, it is no longer because what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you so much for your word. Your word is is good. It is truth. It is is a tremendous guide. It is without error. It it helps us to, to understand you. It is in Scripture that we see who you are. We see what you're like and what you want from us. Lord, I pray that that as we study this passage this morning, as we look at this this phrase, it's this, indeed, we know that you are the Savior of the world. Lord, I I pray that we would understand that that phrase in in a different way, that it would just become more real, that, that Jesus would be the the Savior of the world, that we would be so impacted in our, in our heart, in our mind, that we'd be just inclined to go and, and share what we know of Jesus to those around us. Lord, I pray that you would use the, the preaching of your word in ways that, that we couldn't imagine for your honor and your glory alone. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Maybe be seated. We've been working our way through John's gospel, and I hope that in this book so far, 
that you've begun to, to experience the, the richness and the depth of the gospel. Of this gospel, the gospel of John, but also the, the gospel itself, which has been really center stage through it all. You know, we, we went through the, the third chapter and now the, the fourth chapter, Nicodemus, right? And, and now in, in chapter four, and, and we're looking at this conversation with, that Jesus is having with this woman at the well. Actually, if we're going to be technical, we're really past that conversation that Jesus has had with this woman at the well. She has left her water pitcher there. And she has gone back. She has left Jesus. She has gone back into the city to share with uh, her community about Jesus. Jesus had just had a, a conversation in her absence with the disciples after the woman left, if you remember. It was a, a tremendous teaching moment that Jesus is having with his disciples. He didn't want them to miss the spiritual harvest that was ready I said last time that we were uh, together in the Gospel of John here that uh, notice that, that, that one sows, another reaps. Jesus is saying that the disciples have failed to notice that the harvest was ready. They, they failed to do the, the reaping because the harvest was ready. He told them, you need to look up. You need, you need to see what is, what is in front of you. And now this lesson that Jesus is teaching them is going to make a lot more sense because this woman who left and went back to town is going to bring a lot of people back to where Jesus is, right? The disciples, remember, they get there, the disciples leave, they go to buy food, they leave Jesus by the well, they go to buy food. They fail to see the, the reality of the ready harvest that was right in front of them, and they bring back physical food for Jesus. The woman, on the other hand, came for physical water. She found living water, left her physical water pitcher there, and went to the city, shared about Jesus with everyone that she met, and then brought those people back to Jesus. The disciples are about to see the excitement of the harvest this revival that was taking place. Of course, there has been a, a lot made in, in books and commentaries about Jesus' method of evangelism here when it comes to the woman at the well. And while there are certainly things that we can and should glean from this conversation with the, the woman, we ought not get so caught up in, in pragmatism when and miss the overall point of the text here. Now, when I say Pragmatism. I'm saying that we would see what Jesus did here in his conversation, what worked, and that we would model our method of evangelism after that, and therefore what he did worked, so it will work for us. In other words, pragmatism is concerned about results. What is good and right is determined by results. And in some respects, in, in some respects, being pragmatic is very good. In, in some areas, James Boyce uh, said this. He said, quote, the goal is to find the fastest, least expensive way of producing products and getting things done. 
Pragmatism has improved living standards for millions who now enjoy the benefits of home ownership, adequate clothing, indoor plumbing, and abundant food, end quote. Now, when it comes to the Christian faith, we need to be very careful because the doctrine of sola scriptura stands in opposition to pragmatism. Will we determine the truth by consequences or by effects, or will Scripture be the only and sole authority when it comes to matters of faith and practice? Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. There, there was a church that wanted to reach the community that it found itself in, so they, they opened their doors to their church. But their number really didn't increase. Nothing was really happening. They couldn't really see any visual results right away. And they got together and they, and they started talking, and they started talking about, well, how do we know that we're reaching the community that we find ourselves in? And they came to the conclusion that when the people in the pews increased, then they must be reaching the community. That was the result they wanted to see. So then their goal and everything they did became getting people in seats. The church started to tweak things. They upped their social media game. That the stage lights were, were changed in a way that people would find appealing. The, the music changed. They had a, a worship band, and it became more of a, a concert atmosphere. It, it catered to the popular music of the day. They got a, a charismatic and, and gifted communicator to, to preach, and messages were all aimed about getting people there. They didn't mention things that might offend people or turn people away. So mentions of sin and hell started to decrease and a focus on what God can do for you and how he can make your life better increased. This was the message that was heard on Sunday morning. And you know what? People started to come. In fact, their church was full. They started another service. And then the leadership of the church got together and they, they had a conversation at their elder meeting and it went something like this. Obviously, what we are doing is working. So let's keep doing it. The problem here, and I'm sure that you've seen this already, is that the evaluation of what we are doing does not depend on our standard of what is working. It depends on Scripture alone. Scripture is our sole authority when it comes to matters of faith and practice. We, we need to be careful that we do not fall into pragmatism when it comes to this story. When it comes to Jesus' method of visiting with this woman. Again, there are things that we should glean, but when Jesus teaches the disciples, when he's making the, the point to them, he does not say, now see what I did. Follow these certain steps in your conversation with this lost person, and then you will win them. He simply told them to look up, to see that the harvest was at hand. The woman, on the other hand, she didn't have a sure-fired tactic as she shared the gospel with the people of her city. She simply said, come see this man that told me all that I ever did. Can he be the Christ? In other words, she just shared her experience that she had with Jesus. An experience that if we know Christ, we all have. 
She told the people what she knew. And then and she invited them to come to Jesus. She said, Don't take my word for it. He's at the well. Let's go see him. And they came and they believed. Of course, we don't know everything that the woman said to the people in the town, but we do know that it is because of her words that they believed that Jesus was the Christ and that she had only this simple conversation with Jesus. I find it so fascinating that the disciples go to the city and Jesus stays by the well and the city comes to him. And then they invite him to go into the city and stay longer. All of because of this simple conversation that Jesus had with this woman at the well. And she goes back and she has this conversation about Jesus with the people that she meets. I want you to notice something else about our text, something um, that, is, that is really important, and that is the, the references to belief in this text. And if you're looking at it, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Verse 41, many more believed. Verse 42, we believe for we have heard for ourselves. And then again, we know or we, we believe that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. The text focuses on belief. The woman believed. She tells others they believe. They hear for themselves and they believe. But what do they believe exactly? What is the, the object of this belief? Is it just belief in itself? Is it faith in faith? It's in Jesus Christ who is the Savior of the world. Notice that the belief here that is so prevalent in John's gospel has an object. Notice that it isn't just these people came to Jesus. It isn't only that they believed but it is about what they believed. That Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. And that's the phrase I really want to spend some time trying to, to grasp a little bit deeper here this morning. Because it's really the, the crescendo to the entire story here. This whole story has led up to this point when you have all of these people in the, in the city because of this simple conversation about living water at a well with a woman who has no name. All of these people in the city are saying, we believe that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. It's a great phrase it should strike us as such. It's so pivotal that John is, is pointing out that, that people are coming to know what he knows. And that is that Jesus certainly is. He is indeed the Savior of the world. Just at the onset, when we're thinking about that phrase, uh, and, we, and we try to, to grasp it and understand uh, the significance of it, we need to understand something very important, and that is in Jesus' day, that isn't what people wanted. One of the things that has been near the, the background of this entire narrative all the way through is that Jesus is in Samaria 
speaking to a woman of Samaria who went back to a Samaritan town talking to Samaritan people about a Jew that she met. This was an issue of nationality, of people groups that don't have much to do with one another. In fact, we're told right in the text, Jews and Samaritans didn't talk. They're separated by religious differences, which was characterized by hostility. And here Jesus is visiting with this woman, and she must have felt comfortable enough with him to ask about the correct place to worship, right? A polarizing subject between Jews and Samaritans. Jesus wasn't hostile toward her like most others in his position probably would have been. But it it still points out in this story that Samaritans really wanted a savior of Samaria. They wanted a savior of Samaritans, and Jews wanted a savior of Israel. And of course, that goes further. Greeks and Romans were the same way. Romans wanted a savior of Rome. Greeks wanted a savior of Greece. I suppose this is the case today more than we would like to admit. Of course, we're in a different situation, right? The, the people here were looking, were looking back to see Jesus. These people were looking forward to a coming Messiah and what to expect. But as Americans, though, we have the the tendency to see Jesus, the the Messiah, through an Americanized lens. Some have so attached Jesus with the American church, one is left to wonder how he could possibly be the savior of anybody else in the world. We hear about this a lot today, actually. We hear the, the phrase Christian nationalism thrown around a lot. It's a phrase that's thrown around very frequently, but defined very seldomly. I think that the term gets tossed at people as a proverbial slap in the face. It's a pejorative, but most of the time, people don't know exactly what they mean by it when they hurl it. They're just convinced they know it's negative, it's an insult, it's a bad thing. But here, here's the question. Is being a Christian nationalist the same as being patriotic? Because that's the way the term has been used sometimes. If you're pro-America and you're a Christian, then you must be a Christian nationalist. But what about simply being patriotic? Can one be patriotic and not be a Christian nationalist? Is it even possible Well, I think what we need to do here is what a lot of people do not do when it comes to Christian nationalism, and let's define what we mean by it. The best definition that I've come across is by Matthew McCullough. He said that Christian nationalism is, and I quote, an understanding of American identity and significance held by Christians wherein the nation is a central actor in the world historical purposes of the Christian God. By the way, just pause In your bulletin, you'll see that you can scan a QR code and get notes on your phone. Um, I think that quote is is in there. Um, I don't know if it is on the paper ones you picked up. You can pick up, but it is on it is on the phone ones. But just think about that definition for a moment when it comes to American history. Christian nationalism then would tend to exaggerate the providential purposes of God 
in all American history. To, it would be to conflate Jesus with America as our Savior, right? There's, a, there's like almost a confusion there. Who's our Savior? Is it America or is it Jesus? It conflates the two. It makes the two stand in, in competition with one another. Now, of course, no Christian would say that outright, that people always agree Jesus is the Savior of the world, but what has been called Christian nationalism today conflates the two by elevating national pride to an unhealthy and salvific place. It's certainly possible for one, a Christian, to take part in Fourth of July celebrations without being a Christian nationalist then. Has our nation done everything well? Obviously not. Has there been regrettable things in our nation's history? Of course there has been. Has there been some really good things? That's true as well. We don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't look at things with rose-colored glasses. We see the good things and the bad things about our country for what they are, and we seek to make it better. My point here is that there is a, a propensity for people in our country to see Jesus as the Savior of America in some respect, to, to elevate that role. And just as some Americans are prone to is seeing things this way, like Jews and, and Samaritans, I think, were as well, there are others that see Jesus as the Savior of a certain group of people, primarily. One of the ways this has been seen is in what's been called liberation theology. John Frame, a theologian, defines liberation theology this way. He says, it, liberation theology is a combination of Marxist philosophy with certain biblical motifs. It argues that we should reconstruct the whole of Christian theology by seeing it through the axis of the oppressor and the oppressed. It's a pretty concise good definition of liberation theology. Now, does that sound familiar to you? Probably, uh, perhaps liberation theology, that's not a term that you're familiar with, but you hear people speaking today about cultural Marxism, or in the, the Christian world, we hear people talking in terms of oppressed or oppressor categories. This has much to do with, uh, in the church at least, discussions about critical race theory and intersectionality. This is a, a worldview that understands people that are in these oppressed and oppressor categories, but with one caveat. It doesn't, they don't actually have to be doing the oppressing to be the oppressor, or they actually don't have to be oppressed to be oppressed. To be in these categories, for instance, if one is white, they are automatically an oppressor. Women are oppressed. If one is black, a woman, and identifying as LGBTQ because of intersectionality, they are more oppressed and have more of a, a voice than, say, a white woman who is heterosexual. Liberation theology, all those things are, are tied into this, focuses on the liberation of these oppressed groups. This is what Jesus came to do in their mind. Again, John Frame says this, Quote, 
The theology of liberation developed in the 1960s to argue for the liberation of various groups, primarily the poor black women from economic and political bondage. For these theologians, it's not enough to support the oppressed. One must commit or be committed to social movements, even revolutions dedicated to overturning the structures of society. Liberation theologian James Cone said it this way, referring to the gospel. He said, the scandal is that the gospel means liberation. That this liberation comes to the poor. And it gives them the strength and the courage to break the conditions of servitude. In other words, it's speaking truth to power. Today we see many Christians in conservative churches and seminaries echo what Cohn says here. Although many would recognize Cohn to be extremely radical in error in much that he says, they would follow him here. My point isn't to discuss liberation theology and how it's impacting the Christian world today. We can do that some other time, but my point is to make one simple connection, and that is that liberation theology sees Jesus as not being the savior of the world but the Savior for certain groups of people. And salvation is seen as, as liberation from worldly bondages and worldly oppressions. And the point that I'm making here is that the confession of these new Samaritan believers here in our text stands in stark contrast with this kind of thinking. It's true, Jesus has come to a woman a woman that was a, a sinner. She was looked down on. She, even more than being a woman, she was a Samaritan. So intersectionally speaking, she was more in the oppressed camp. And it's true that she met with Jesus, that Jesus had this conversation with her, and some might make a lot of that, but Jesus' language to her doesn't resemble the language of liberation in the least. He says nothing of speaking truth to power. He doesn't comment on the fact that she is unjustly oppressed and that he has come to free her from that. He has only, he has only pointed to the fact that he himself is the living water and remedy to her great need. Her message to others in the city had nothing to do with the unjust Samaritan plight, but everything to do with Jesus, the Christ, who is the Savior, not of just the Jews but of the whole world. I think to really understand that the statement here that, that these make, that they know that Jesus is the Savior of the world, we need to take and, and look at the term world and how that's used here, as John has been using it. The, the word world here in the, in the Greek is the word cosmos. It's used 185 times in the New Testament. A hundred and five of those are in John's writings. So John's gospel, first, second, third John, and Revelation. 105 times. Just a hair under 80. 78 times these occurrences are in the gospel of John. And the point is simple. John likes the word. It's a significant word for him. In fact, one could say that it's one of the great themes in John's writings, in John's gospel. 
The word cosmos likely started out referring to an ornament, an object that was well-constructed. It was decorative and very appealing to the eye. Just think of uh, the word cosmetic, for instance. From the original use of the of the word, we start to see it just naturally being used to describe the universe because of its construction and its beauty. The universe, as one commentator put it, is God's ornament. Just think of this meaning when it comes to John 1.10, where we read, He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The world was God's ornament, yet the world did not see it for what it was. Here we see that the world, the universe, was made by Jesus. The earth and its great order and beauty was the most significant part of the entire universe. It was natural that the, the word cosmos would be implied to the earth and after that to the people that lived on it. John uses this idea that the world refers to people that live on the earth. Most often, the people or the word world is a reference to the human race or the human race in opposition to God. We see that especially in the later chapters of John's gospel. So those who place their faith in Jesus Christ are distinguished from the world. Just listen to John 13.1. Now, before the Feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. Notice the the difference there. His own who were in the world. What Jesus is getting at here is even made more clear in John 17, 9, where Jesus prays this. He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world but for those who you have given me, they are yours. Clearly, here then, the world is the human race set in opposition to God as and his disciples are distinct from the world. Jesus is praying for them. He's not praying for the world. As one works through the later chapters of John, there is this line of distinction that is drawn between those who are Jesus' disciples and those who are part of the world. In the earlier chapters of John, however, where we are, we see Jesus' action toward the human race more generally. In other words, we see the offer of Jesus being open and given to the entire human race, to all people. Yes, there are people that will believe and there are those who, who do not. And there is a distinction that will really be made as we go through the Gospel of John. But at the start, the emphasis is on the proclamation, the offer that is given to everyone, to all of the human race. <clears throat> so let me just go back to a couple places that we've already been and look at some of these ways the word world has been used, and I think that's going to help us really understand the phrase where we're at. If you would look at John 1 9, John 1 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So here you don't see that distinction, do you? You have everyone being talked about the same way as the world. 
And if we're going to grasp the, the meaning of this verse, we need to remember that it doesn't refer to some divine spark of divinity within each individual. There are some that would hold that view, that there is a, a bit of divine in us all. Jesus is the purest of that divine light. But the light here that we're speaking of is the person of Jesus, the historical person. And the point is that Jesus does as light does. It's shown on all people. It isn't an inward light, but Jesus is like a spotlight shining his light on a dark world. The verse is also very clear that Jesus' light shines on all people. There's no other true light. Jesus is that light that he shines on all. In other words, the light of Jesus is for all people. Now it's true that some, most people, even though the light, the true light is, is shining, it's true that, that most people wish to stay in the dark. They deny the spiritual light of Jesus. This is a truth that the Apostle Paul uh, makes clear in, in chapter 9 of Romans when his soul aches for his own people that deny the true light. I would even guess that there are those in this room that deny the true light of Jesus. It does not change the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. But if you desire darkness, it doesn't change who Jesus is. It just puts you in darkness. If you desire Jesus, you desire Jesus to be the, the Lord of your life. You, you see, if, if you recognize Jesus to be the true light, you're in essence saying that, that Jesus knows the way. That we're to follow his commands. That he is the, the light to our path. That we don't know what's best for us, but he does. Without him, we're just wandering around in the dark. To say it differently, recognizing Jesus as the true light is submitting to him as the Lord of your life, the master and ruler that knows everything and knows the way to eternal life. Another important text that we've already looked at is John 1, 29. The, the next day he saw, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The, the meaning here is, is clear that, that John the Baptist is pointing to Jesus as the only Savior of those who would believe in him. Salvation is by faith. In Christ Jesus alone. We know that to be true. And of course, this verse doesn't deny that. This verse makes it very, a very important point, And that is that Jesus died in order that all people might come to repentance. Let me see if I can make that make more sense. When I, sometimes when I try to explain things, I feel like I, I stir the pot a little too much. But I think it needs to be done. I, I say this often, that, that Jesus' death on the cross actually accomplished something. It accomplished the salvation of every person that would place their faith and trust in him. In, in other words, Jesus 
death on the cross didn't make him a potential savior, but he was a, a real savior. Jesus died on the cross. He actually dealt with sin literally. The, the wrath of God was placed on Christ and he bore the weight of sin. Every person that would place their faith and trust in him. He didn't bear the weight of the sins of people that would never believe. That wouldn't make any sense. Either your sins are atoned for and dealt with and cast as far as the east is from the west, thrown at the bottom of the deepest ocean and forgotten, or they're not. Some will say, well, Jesus died for everyone who sins, but then they have to choose to accept what Jesus did. So who's salvation up to in the end? If you take that route, you're also taking the route that salvation is not by grace, it's by you. You see the issue? It's a difficult thing for people to grasp, but it can really be no other way. When it comes to the atonement or the meaning of Christ's death, it's true that Jesus bore the wrath of God for those who would trust in him, for those who had trusted in him. He died for those who were his. So the atonement is limited in its efficiency. See what I mean by that? What I mean by that is that not all people are saved in the end. It's a, it's a truth. It's a fact that we know. It's a hard truth. Not every, we don't believe in universalism. We don't believe that all people are going to heaven. This is a truth that we know. Christ did not accomplish redemption for those who would never come to faith. But there's another truth here, and this is the one that we're really concerned with. And that is not the efficiency of the atonement, but the sufficiency of the atonement. You see, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing lines here. The sufficiency of the atonement. That is that every person that desires Christ as their Savior will by no means ever be turned away. There is enough in Christ's death for every person that desires salvation. Nobody will be turned away. Jesus says, All who are weary and heavy burdened, come to me and find rest. Your soul. If you are, if you are thirsty, come to me and find drink and nourishment. There's room for anyone. We could say that the atonement is universal and not limited in this respect. The gospel call is to everyone. Come and drink of the water, of the living water. Because if you do, if you believe, then you will thirst no more. You'll leave the pitcher there. You'll go. You'll find Jesus to be the Savior of the world. So John the Baptist here isn't suggesting that Jesus is going to atone for the sins of the entire world. He isn't preaching universalism. As in every person will be saved. We know that isn't true. So what he's speaking of here is the sufficiency of the atonement. 
that the sacrifice of the precious lamb would be enough to deal with the sins of the whole world. If, if all would come, there would be enough. Of every person that would come to him and place their faith and trust in him. Now, just put this in, in, the, in contrast to the system in which the people lived. That they were animals that were slaughtered all of the time, right? The Day of Atonement was a, a bloody mess year after year. And here John is saying, this is the one we have waited for. This is the Lamb. And if you trust in Him, there will be no more sacrifices needed. It's not only sufficient for the Jews. It's not only sufficient for a group of people. It's not only sufficient for one nation. It's sufficient for the entire world. Everybody that believes will have eternal life in Christ's name. Everybody. So, well, I don't know that when Jesus died that your sins were dealt with. I do know this. And that is, if you would turn to Jesus and believe in Jesus, trust in him as your only hope in life and death. If you believe that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin that you deserved, that his righteousness can be yours by faith, if you believe that, then there is absolute confidence. You can be certain that the weight of God's wrath came down on your sin and he died. In closing, let me point to, to one more text, and that is relevant to help us understand that, that phrase, the Savior of the world in chapter 4. And that's John 3.16. You know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let me ask you a simple question in closing. How can a sinful human being like me or you, ever know that God is love? How can a sinful person find the love of God? Because they don't deserve it. They're not going to find it in books. You're not going to find it in history. It isn't found in philosophy. It isn't found in other religions, even though... It's popular to say that it is. All religions go to the same God. It's like climbing a, a mountain. We just all take different routes to get to the same place. That's not how we're going to find how a sinful person will find that God loves them. But this is a fact that is only found in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the only place. How do we know that we're loved by God? It's not in the great beauty of the universe. The fact is the world is beautiful. I've seen some beautiful sunsets this uh, last week on the lake. But it's also horrific at times too. The fact is we know that God loves us because Jesus died for us. It's right to say that. Jesus died for every person that would place their faith and trust in him. In fact, God demonstrated his love to everyone 
that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 makes it so abundantly clear. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even when we loved and lived in opposition to him, even when we were rejecting the light of the world that was shown upon us, even when we despised the lamb, you know, when the world was confronted with the lamb of God that came into the world to to save sinners, what did they do? They crucified him. They despised his love for them. And even then, God made a way. I think it's seen so clearly in Matthew 27, 54. Right after the death of Jesus, we read this. When the centurion and those who were then those who were with him were keeping watch over Jesus. They saw the earthquake and what had taken place, and they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Here you have ones that are actively involved in the death of Christ, and it was after Jesus is dead that they realized who it is that had been killed. God's love for even them was shown in the death of his Son. God's love was demonstrated for them. Even when they were actively involved in the murder of Jesus. I love the the testimony of those that the woman at the well brought back to Jesus. Their testimony is simple. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of every person who will believe and, and trust in him. When you believe and and trust in him, something amazing happens. Your sin is is given to him. It's, It's atoned for on the cross. It's dealt with. And his righteousness is given to you. He is the Savior to every person that would believe in him. A woman who has had several husbands who's living in adultery. Samaritans a religious Pharisee, a fisherman, tax collectors, me, you. Jesus is the Savior of everyone that comes to him in faith. You want to know a simple way you can apply this to your life? I wasn't even going to wasn't even going to make this connection because I thought it was obvious enough. Simple way you can apply this to your life. The same way the woman did. Right? What does she recognize? Jesus is the savior of the world. Everybody that that believes in him has eternal life. Everyone. All they have to do is believe in him. And if they're going to believe in him, they have to hear of him. So what did she do? She went into the city and she told people about him. Come, see this guy that told me all I ever did. He is the Christ. Simple way. Go tell people what you know is true. Challenge them. Believe Jesus is the savior of the world. He can be your savior too. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. 
If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.